Let's turn in God's Word now to Isaiah in chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, we'll read uh, this evening, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 16. And uh, let's first go and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we're thankful. Once again, that you have brought us here to hear you speak. We do pray that you would heal and body Oscar, Michelle, and Elias, who's sick. Father, we also pray you would heal us all in our bodies, but also in our souls. In Christ, your Son, even here in this, your life-giving Word, May you put your word in our minds, in our hearts, and do your great work of salvation amongst your people, and humble your servant who preaches, that we would hear you speak and not anyone else, and that we would all be moved to fear the Lord and not man, and then exalt in Christ your Son, we pray in His name, Amen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We'll read through verse 16. These are God's words. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Those are God's words. I remember my evangelical, if we can call him that, evangelical college professor teaching me and our class that I was in teaching here in Isaiah 7 that the virgin of verse 14 was not the Virgin Mary because uh, liberals say, I'm adding that, liberals say that wouldn't have taken place for several centuries. And so uh, they say that can't fit here. They put it as Ahaz's future wife and son, or Isaiah's future wife and son, or that virgin here simply refers to a young woman, as my professor said, as some translations also wrongly have it. But all those are false. right? But this serves as a warning to not so easily trust the scholars, even theological scholars. Don't so easily trust the scholars in science, Medicine, etc. We go on and on. But especially, don't trust the scholars necessarily, not just because they're the scholars, don't trust them just because they're the scholars in doctrine and theology. Even if they're pastors of some great congregation, don't necessarily trust them because of that. The academy, or school, kids, the academy, friends, is where godly men and women often go to darken their souls. 
Because the goal of the academy is always to come up with something new. But there is nothing new under the sun. And there is definitely nothing new about in doctrine and theology, is there? God has given us His Word, and that's what we know. The only thing happening is more and more distorting of God's Word. And even godly men, my professors in seminary, reform men, some still highly respectable reform men, even they can't escape completely the errors of the modern day scholarship in certain places. And we'll go over that whenever it comes up in God's Word. And uh, Scripture is one of those doctrines. And so we all need discernment. Do not trust the scholars just because they're a scholar or a seminary professor. And I wish at the time uh, my college professor was teaching on this passage that I knew the Bible better because the angel sent from the Lord tells us exactly who it was who this virgin is. The Virgin Mary, from whom Jesus was born after being conceived in the womb, her womb, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was called to be called Emmanuel, just like our verse. That's what we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, that's the angel speaking again, saying, Joseph... Thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Why is he concerned? Joseph is concerned about taking Mary to be his wife. Why? Because she's with child. But he hasn't known her. He's not married to her. Right? And so he's concerned. And the angel comes to say, No, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, that's Isaiah the prophet in chapter 7, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And so this is what we are looking at first this evening. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, do you remember the last time the hardness of the heart of King Ahaz, king of Judah, before Jehovah? We know he would continue to rebel against the Lord as we looked at uh, 2 Kings 16. He would continue to rebel against the Lord as Israel and Syria planned their attacks. And he would eventually, though the Lord comes to him and says, ask of a sign. Just ask of a sign and and you'll see that the promise that you will be delivered from Syria and Israel will come about. But he refuses to ask for a sign, for help from the Lord, to turn unto the Lord. And instead, he eventually, we know in the future, from this point, turns to the king of Assyria for help. And so instead of turning to Jehovah, the only one who could actually help and who had just promised that Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria could do nothing but be destroyed. And yet Ahaz did not believe and he turned to the king of Assyria. And so Jehovah, verse 11, commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign. Verse 12, 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Jehovah is saying, I will give you more and ample proof of my strength and power and that all this will be true, that He had just promised that you will be delivered from Syria and Israel. Just ask a sign to confirm, to confirm it so that you can have faith, Ahaz. And Ahaz refuses. He didn't want the proof. He did not want Jehovah. He did not want to be without excuse for not believing. He loved the darkness and disobedience. But now the Lord comes back in verse 14, and He says what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. But I'm not going to just give you a sign, Ahaz. I'm going to give a sign to all. To everyone. Look at verse like the sign, not just the sign for you, like was offered in verse 11, ask the a sign, right? Singular, you singular. But now a sign generally for all, verse 14, therefore the Lord Himself shall give you, plural, a sign. All of you. Everyone. He uses, interesting, He uses Jehovah in verse 11, thy God, Jehovah thy God, and your God, Ahaz. And in verse 14, after Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign in his rebellion, then he says in verse 14, Adonai. He doesn't use Jehovah. He uses the word Adonai. That makes us think of the great consequences, again, of covenant breaking in the Covenant breaking not only of Ahaz, but ourselves. It's not any longer Jehovah thy God. Now it is the Lord. The, your Master. What is the sign? Verse 14, again it says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. First, looking at the word virgin, since it's so debated today. The word used in verse 14, there's two words for virgin. The first word is the one used in verse 14, and it is consistently used in Scripture to refer to a woman who has not known a man. A woman who has not known a man, never been uh, children, married, and no children, right? In the Bible, there is a second word used for virgin, meaning a young woman. And both are used in Genesis 24 in reference to Rebecca, and that helps us. It says they're using the second word in this first verse I'll read. The second word for virgin, that means a young lady. It says, And a damsel was very fair to look upon a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And so that's the second word, not the word that we have in our passage. The second word that refers to a young lady. And it's clarified then about that young lady that she is something about her. Neither had any man known 
known her. Which tells you something about that word. That in the word itself, it does not mean that she had no relations with a man. So that we all know, and there's no confusion, it declares it right to us. But that first word, used in our passage as well, we find some 20-something verses later, after we have already heard it's a young lady who is also not known a man. And it's, everything is contained, it's intrinsic to the word itself that she has not been with a man. It says, Behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, And I say to her, give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And it goes on. That's the word used in Isaiah 7. The word virgin in our passage. A young woman who had no relations with a man. All contained in that one word. And so again, the liberal and what we call even evangelical scholars today who are becoming liberal are wrong. And this is important, friends, because it's about the virgin birth, which is absolutely critically important to our faith. The virgin birth, it will be a sign for you all. That's the point of our passage. The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Again, Jehovah had commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign, something extraordinary, unusual, that would not have come from or been a part of ordinary providence. Ordinary providence is what normally comes about every day in normal situations. And since Ahaz refused to ask for that sign, the Lord says, I will give you a sign anyway, an extraordinary, unusual sign, a a significant miracle. The ordinary birth of a child, according to ordinary providence, is a wonderful, it's an astonishing thing for our minds and our hearts to consider. But it's not a miracle, as so many parents often say or deem it. There is no sign in it. There's nothing extraordinary in it. It's ordinary. As well as as much as it is extraordinary to us of how it all comes about, it is ordinary in everyday life. But here, a miracle. Something beyond ordinary providence. Something not normal in God's normal workings of the world, but rather something extraordinary that He does in great power. A virgin who has not known a man will conceive of a child. Children, she will have a baby in her womb, in her tummy, right? How? Not the normal way that your mothers have a baby in their tummy but by the power of the Holy Spirit conceiving the baby in her womb. Why was this important that the sign be a virgin who conceives? Because as we've already shown, referring to the Virgin Mary and Jesus being conceived in her womb as a young woman who has never known a man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this shows that He was not born in sin. Not conceived in sin. Not covenantally guilty. Sinful. No original sin. Even from Adam. And that is so very important. So as we confess, 
Christ the Son of God, kids. Christ the Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, yet without sin. And that was only possible because He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in her womb. This was a sign that had meaning. The reason the Lord Jesus, according to His human nature, was not descended of Adam by ordinary generation is so that the covenant of life, or the covenant of works, right kids, in our catechism we talk about the covenant of life. The covenant of life, the covenant of works, which Adam broke in the garden, bringing death to all mankind so that covenantally the curse would not come upon Christ for what Christ did. So that He would not be born in covenant or in union with Adam and sin. And so as our catechism, we just heard, yet without sin. And so He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived not ordinarily descending from His father and mother, descending therefore from Adam and in sin, no, but by the Holy Spirit in power. Christ is thus free from all sin and all guilt. None of Adam's sin and guilt was imputed unto Him or credited to Christ like it is to us when we are conceived. And so that He would not be born in covenant or in union with Adam. But as the mediator of the covenant, all the sins of all His people were imputed, credited to Him. They were not His but they were credited to Him and reckoned to His account as the substitute for guilty sinners. But that was serving as this sinless substitute that He bore the sins of the sin of many. When in Romans 5, it says, "...by the offense of one, made many were made sinners." By the offense of, excuse me, by the offense of one, many were made sinners, Adam. Christ was not included in that many. But it was everyone else, all who descended in mankind from Adam ordinarily. We say it in the, the catechism, by ordinary generation. That's ordinarily how children come to be. Right? Mothers and fathers together producing a child, but not Christ. Christ was not born that way or conceived that way. And so that includes us. All who descend in mankind from Adam ordinarily. That's us. When, when we, uh, we then, when conceived, are conceived in sin and union with our father Adam, but not Christ. For as by one man's, Romans 5, for as by one man's, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteous. And then the text goes on about the sign. It says, Behold, in our passage, verse 14, a virgin, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I think everything else in the verse we understand. Bearing a son, conceiving, Calling someone's name, like naming them. 
Emmanuel. Emmanuel means, as we heard in Matthew's Gospel, God with us. God present with us. But here, once again, the scholars say that this wouldn't actually be Jesus Christ, the God-man, God with us, but that the name will just declare generally that God is with His people. How utterly false. Because Matthew, we've already read, has denied that. The Lord through Matthew. It is the name of the child and a description of the child at the same time. This child is Himself. It's not just a name that's a token symbol. He is God with us. Jesus is God with us. Consider Isaiah 9.6. Just a couple chapters from now. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so when this child is conceived and then born, or just conceived, we could say, we don't even, say, don't even need to say He's born. When the child is conceived, He will be the mighty God with us. The mighty God with us. God manifested in the flesh. And that's Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God who took on flesh, and so God and man, and what catechism? The two distinct natures, and one person forever. He is one divine person, always, forever, doesn't change. He has a God nature, a divine nature, and a human nature, a man nature, just like we have a man nature. He never ceased to be God. He is eternally God. He became a man without ceasing to be what He always was and always will be, God. He, and so He continues to be and will be God and man and two distinct natures in one person forever. John 3, it says this, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And you might think, well, that's a confusing verse if we paid attention to what he's saying. It's Jesus speaking about Himself. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which we heard this morning, which is in heaven. And He's saying that while He's on the earth. How can He be in heaven? And so the Son of Man, as we heard this morning, Jesus there stands upon the earth saying, He's come down from heaven to earth. And yet also that He is in heaven. How is that possible? In His being conceived in His birth called the Incarnation, He came down from heaven. He is in uh, that God, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the Son, took to Himself a true body, and a reasonable soul, like our catechism says. Took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. And so He became a man in this world and yet did not cease to be God. Still God. Took to Himself a body. He was man. True body and a reasonable soul. He had reason. He could think. He became a man in this world and yet did not cease to be God. So was and is forever God and man fully, perfectly, truly, forever. And God is everywhere. 
Is He not? He is omnipresent. And specifically, He is often shown as manifesting His presence in heaven. And so the Son of Man, yes, declares His manhood, and yet it also describes His divinity. Messiah. The Christ. And John 3 says, while He is standing on the earth, He's still in heaven. How can that be? I can't understand that. Of course you can't understand that. Of course you cannot understand. There's nothing like this anywhere else. And yet it's still true that He is God and He became man, undivided, one person. There He stood in John's Gospel on the earth as a man and His divine presence filling heaven and earth. And so He came down from heaven, but He's still in heaven. God manifests in the flesh, but still God. John 1, speaking of God in the beginning, speaking of Christ who is God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In John 20, Thomas sees the hands and feet of Christ after His resurrection, and he exclaims, My Lord and my God! Jesus, who is crucified in His human nature, addressed as my Lord and my God. The miracles show forth His glory. John 2 is turning the water into wine. This beginning of miracles that Jesus in Cana of Galilee manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. The miracles manifested His glory. You never see the disciples performing miracles for the display of their own glory, but for Christ's glory. And Christ performs those miracles to display His glory. Why? Because He's God! He's God. And the Word was made, the same passage, John 1, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This is God! 14th verse of John 1, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know, don't we, that Christ spoke not as from God, but as God, as we learned in Matthew's uh, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, right? At the end of chapter 7, as we investigated there. You never hear from Jesus. You never hear from Jesus, Thus saith the Lord, do you? Never hear that. What do you hear from Jesus? Verily, verily, I say unto you. I say unto you. Why? Because He's God manifest in the flesh amongst us as a divine person. He suffered in His human nature. God as God does not suffer. He is blessed forever. But Christ, the divine second person of the Trinity, the one God had suffered in His human nature. Acts 20, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood. The church, God, purchased with His own blood. Now, if you take that wrongly, you can become a heretic, Right? thinking that God has blood, or whatever you want to think, God has no blood. God is a... Children. God is a spirit. He has no blood. 
Right? The blood is the blood of the divine person, but it is not divine blood. It is not of His divine nature, but of His human nature. If you have questions about that, you can ask me after worship. It is human blood of a human nature belonging to the one divine person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, manifested in the flesh. But do not be troubled here if you do not understand how this can be because there is no parallel or analogy in all of the earth. In all the heavens. There's no analogy, there's no parallel to this. Only God is, this is only true of Him. It's only true of Jesus Christ. Even as much as scholars and, and, and we want to take a piece of paper or a whiteboard, a chalkboard, and draw a picture to try to, to try to show how Christ being the one person, the one divine person, has both a divine nature and a human nature. And how that doesn't conflict, and how His human nature is not divine, and His, his divine nature is not human. And we break, doing that, we break the second and third commandment. And in that, breaking all the commandments. It does not exist. There's no parallel. There's no analogy. There's nothing like this anywhere. And so you can understand how this can be. Friends, uh, it might be difficult to understand, and that's fine. It should be difficult to understand. And yet, He's taught us these things in His Word, and so what must be true? You must believe. You must believe. Believe, friends, for Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And that's the sign the Lord promised to show to all, despite King Ahaz, his unbelief and his covenant breaking and his hardness of heart. The second point this evening, the Lord's plan unthwarted. Unthwarted might not be a word, but you understand what I mean. Not thwarted, right? I don't know if it is a word I asked my wife. She didn't know. She said, look in the dictionary. I looked in the dictionary. It's not there. But it sounds like a word. It is a word. As Tim has taught me, you just say the word and it's a word. The Lord's plan unthwarted. Verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign... Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and shall call his name Emmanuel. Ahaz refused the sign. Refused to ask for a sign. But the Lord's saying He's going to give a sign anyway. A promised sign. And Ahaz rejecting the sign and asking for a sign, uh, refusing asking for a sign, showed his what? His unbelief in God. His unbelief in the Lord and unbelief in the whole covenant of God. The covenant of God and the promised Christ to come. The Messiah. And so Ahaz, yes, believed in the Lord's existence. But that was not, of course, that's not sufficient for salvation and covenant keeping. The devil also believes and knows in the Lord's existence. That does not save him from his utter rebellion against Jehovah. There are many people in the world today who are dead in their souls, who believe in the existence of God and in the existence of the God of Scripture. But Ahaz did not trust the Lord. He did not submit to the Lord. He trusted more in who? The king of Assyria. He submitted to whom? The king of Assyria. 
He rejected the covenant of God, the promises in Christ, but the Lord says, here is a sign that will uh, be given in due time, regardless of whether Ahaz, you have faith or not. And he doesn't. Here's a sign that I will give anyway, the Lord says. And here's a sign for the whole world that I will give. And this sign shall be longed for, for the true people of God, despite Ahaz's unbelief and folly. The promise of God will stand. A sign will be sent, despite whether Ahaz believes or not. Or the next king believes or not. Romans 3, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid! Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. The Lord's promise and plan would not be thwarted. He would not and never reverse His promise of a Redeemer just because King Ahaz refused to believe and repent. His plan is not thwarted by covenant breakers and those who profane the covenant. The purposes of God are sure. The promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. He shall save His people from their sins. Christ shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied by His knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many. For He shall bear their iniquities. He will build His church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the purpose and plan of God is that mercy shall be built and that the elect multitude and those who the elect multitude shall be redeemed and delivered by the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the people like Ahaz, the covenant breakers, those who despise the truth, they shall not in any way frustrate the plans and purposes of God. And so we have already heard their opposition to the truth is within the sovereign purposes and plan of God. We heard that a few Lord's Days ago. Without God being the author of sin in it, and yet nevertheless, it is all planned by God. The opposition to the Jews, to Christ, of the Jews to Christ in His crucifixion was in the plan of God. You think of, it says in Acts 2, Him being delivered, Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, the Jews, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so it is like the Lord is saying, Ahaz, you despise the truth, but the truth will still prevail. Praise God. There will be a sign, and that sign will come despite your unbelief and your rejection of me. Here's the sign that the true people of God will prize, they will look for, they will delight in. When it happens, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The God-man. Again, who is He? Yes, divine. One divine person. Two natures. God and man forever. Verse 15. It says, Butter and honey shall He eat, and He may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey. He will eat these less than solid foods. And that, of course, very similar to how we feed babies today. He will eat these less than solid foods. And by it he may grow up, as it goes on and talks about, he may grow up in knowledge and wisdom. A baby to a child to a man 
so that he will come to know, to refuse the evil, and choose the good. There will be growth of wisdom. Growth of wisdom in Christ's human nature from when he is conceived and born until manhood. Christ, who is here promised in Isaiah 7 in his human nature, will not only be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost, right? But he shall continue after being born. He shall continue to boyhood and manhood. And he shall be able to discern and choose wisely between good and evil. And children, that's what you are to learn to do. To discern, to choose, to do good and not evil. Learn what evil is to refuse it. And to learn what good is and do it in Christ by His grace. Sinful infants, as they grow, we know, inevitably choose the evil and hate the good. Even the elect infants and regenerate infants do similarly. But this child, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, this child will consistently and flawlessly choose good and refuse evil perfectly. And he, he discerned, as he discerns the difference in his human nature between good and evil, as he grows up more and more, he will choose good. Emmanuel in his human nature will develop in his early years. All his faculties will develop from infancy to boyhood. And so he will be a sinless infant becoming a sinless boy. Luke 2, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He was a sinless infant who as he developed became a sinless or was a sinless boy and from a sinless boy was a sinless young man and a sinless young man to a sinless man that we see in the Gospels or the predominant part of the Gospels in that three years of His public ministry. And this assures us that Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, was truly and fully a man. He's no different in that respect than us. He grows in wisdom and stature. He grew... Not only did he have development in his body, he had development of his reason, he had development of his mind. There was no, in all of it, yet there was no sin. He was sinless. That's hard to comprehend as well. There was not even one little thought in the very back of his mind at any point, somewhere that contained even an ounce of sin. Praise God for that. Sinless. And just as us, He was addressed and had to respond. We interact with people, He was addressed, He had to respond. And He responded sinlessly, perfectly, every time. He manifested human emotions. Perfect emotion, sinless. Truly a man. Sinless infant. Sinless boy, sinless man. Why? For His bride, for the church. He became, he came to be sinless, a sinless substitute for sinful man. Hebrews 2, he was made not like the angels, but a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Why the God man and not the God angel? 
There were fallen angels. Why not save them? Because His plan was to redeem sinful man, not sinful angels. And so He took on a human nature. Well, that's not fair, God. Those angels, you could have saved them, couldn't you? Of course He could. It wasn't His plan. And it is fair. And so as He was in His plan, the God's plan to redeem sinful man, He sent His Son. And so His Son took on a human nature as the God-man. For sinful angels, rather, He cast them down to hell, as Scripture says, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Would it please God? Thankful that God was pleased to do this according to His plan to send a Redeemer of sinful men. The Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, an infant who would become a boy, developing, eating not solid foods, right? eating butter, honey, sinlessly developing, truly human, but without sin and not ceasing to be God. And that's how He could bear the full eternal weight and wrath of God against sinful men as a substitute for men. And He could bear it for a finite time because He's a divine person suffering in His human nature. And in His sufferings, there were the, the, His sufferings were then of infinite value because He is a divine person. What a wonderful Savior we have. And the Lord's plan was unthwarted. And that continues in verse 16. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. He goes back and starts talking to Ahaz again. I'm going to give a sign to all the people. And it's going to be for your sake too. Emmanuel's birth was centuries in the future. The deliverance of Judah from Syria and Israel. The northern kingdom was within a few years from this point. And the meaning here can be complicated, but it's not really. It's, it's that time frame that it would be for the infant to grow, to know, to refuse evil and choose good. So in approximately that same period, not many years, in other words, the, the land that thou abhorrest Ahaz, Syria, Israel, these enemies of Judah, these kings who are enemies of Judah shall be forsaken. The land, those that land of Syria and Israel shall be forsaken of both her kings. And so it was, friends, within a few years, from when Scripture describes it, the Pekah and Rezin, the kings of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, were gone. And so the immediate threat would be gone as the Lord promised. Ahaz did not have an eternal salvation, just this temporal one. He trusted in the king of Assyria. Next time we'll see verse 17, it says, The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people, he's speaking to King Ahaz, and upon thy father's house, days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. He will bring that king of Assyria. And so he trusted in that king of Assyria. Instead of the Lord, he got the king of Assyria, but not in the way he thought, he wanted. 
He would have had have this temporal deliverance, but in but it would end in actually great destruction, judgment upon him and upon Judah. Now, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day morning, I encourage you to examine yourselves this week, as we're commanded to do by the Lord every week when we come to worship Him, but especially when we come to His table to partake and celebrate Christ's death. Contemplate this week (coughs) coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, but not like King Ahaz, who refused. Rather, receive Him by faith. Meditate upon Christ Jesus as the God-man, one divine person, Two distinct natures, divine nature, human nature. Meditate upon that this week. He had to be one divine person forever. And in His God and human natures. A substitute there on the cross and to suffer and die for your sins and your guilt. To remove it from you. That you would have... In Him, life forever. Salvation was the eternal plan of God to send Him to suffer and die. And His plan was not thwarted. A good passage to read again is Philippians 2 that we read this evening. He had to empty Himself to come here and to become a man. Rather, as His plan was not thwarted, God... It says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Meditate upon the fact this week that Christ had to be both divine and human. Divine person and a human nature to suffer and die for your sins. Because of His eternal love for you. There are covenant breakers in the church. But the Lord sent His sign despite the covenant breakers in the church. He sent His sign, Emmanuel, and all whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, we give You thanks once again for the sign that You sent for our sakes despite the covenant breaking of a great king in Judah. And his rebellion. And even the many other covenant breakers, sinners, and unbelievers in your bride, the church, the kingdom on earth. Or rather, you have seen fit through him and sending him to save us from our sins. Your plan, we exalt in you the God who is always faithful to your promises. And you sent a sign. And you sent your Son for our sakes that we who were poor might be rich in Him. Help us to meditate upon you and your Son this week and how His sufferings, His death are perfectly sufficient and effectual 
to the saving of our souls, to all the souls who believe and turn from their sins to You. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.